Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. And today you get to listen to an interview I just recorded with a dear friend of mine, Robert Capps. If you don't know his name, you will very soon. He's someone who I just think so highly of. And honestly, everyone I know who knows Robert adores him. But he's also very humble. And so I think there are a lot of newer fraud fighters that don't know Robert as well. But you'll actually, as you listen to this interview, you'll realize that there are probably some processes or products that you use on a daily basis within your company or that have become standard best practices that he was a part of creating. Part of that comes with the time that we were coming up in fraud without as much technology as there is now. And it was just kind of the wild west for a while there. But also his brain just works in really unique ways. And I think that you will definitely appreciate that. That's something that I really enjoy about this podcast is getting to introduce you to people that maybe you wouldn't know otherwise unless you attended the same conference or knew each other some other way. So, or maybe you use the same provider and you meet up at their events or whatever it is. But this world is full of incredible fraud fighters and each person has their own unique experience. And maybe it was from before they entered fraud and they bring that into fraud. We also think about problems and solutions differently. So I just, I know you're going to get a lot out of this interview. A little bit about Robert. He was in the banking industry in information security and network security. And then he kind of went in to help the bank create anti-phishing products and other tools that have really helped them to be able to fight the fraud that they were facing at the time. And I know at least one of the things that he created is kind of standard now within banking. But then he moved on to be the senior manager of global trust and safety at StubHub. And that's when I met Robert. And that's probably when a lot of people did. He was on the advisory board for the MRC for several years and really was a driving force for a lot of things that now have become commonplace. For instance, he, as well as leaders at two other event ticketing companies, were the pioneers in creating and really advocating for, to their solution provider, a consortium. And now you probably have the benefit of a consortium, whoever your product is or whoever your core fraud provider is. But at the time, there was no way for merchants to be able to, for lack of a better word, share information in their negative lists with each other. And because they were competitors and they were all experiencing the same bad actors, that was critical. And so they, the three of them got together and advocated to this provider. That was what they needed. And now everyone who uses that provider has access to that service, as well as many other fraud providers as well. And there's many different flavors of consortiums and different products that have them, but they help companies fight fraud every day. And that was something that he was one of the people who thought that up and thought about how it could work in a practical way. He also helped to build the first investigative department, post-transaction investigations department for an e-commerce company that I knew of or know of. And they ended up prosecuting some really big cases with federal agencies from all over the world. And there were some really high profile headlines that Robert and several other people on his team at StubHub at the time were responsible for. We're going to talk about both of those things on this episode. We also talk about some of our favorite things about being in the fraud industry. Robert has a lot of words of wisdom that I think you'll all relate to. Honestly, his brain works in unique ways. And I'm always, I always walk away from a conversation from with Robert, whether we're talking about our personal lives or just fraud in general or specific problems, I always walk away thinking about something differently than I did before. And 
that is a really great quality in a friend as well as in a colleague. And I am so lucky to know him. And I know that you are going to be really interested in learning more from him as well. I will include a link to his profile on LinkedIn in the show notes. I believe he is Robert W. Caps on LinkedIn. And there, I'm just going to let you listen in on my conversation with my dear friend, Robert Caps. I really think you'll enjoy it. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. Well, today I am joined by a good friend that I have known for well over half of my career, and I am excited for you all to get to know him as well, if you don't already. Robert Caps, welcome to Fraudology. Oh, thank you. Long time listener. First time here. (laughs) Usually I'm texting you about things I heard on your podcast. (laughs) Yeah, it cracks me up. You're one of a few people who all just get a random text. I'm like, oh, they listened. Like, to me, I feel like so much more than I do. So I'm like, gosh, did you learn anything? But (laughs) always, I always learn something. That's the great thing is no one can be an expert. Everybody has their own perspective. Everybody has their own field of view. And coming together and sharing that is what brings us all higher in our careers, higher in our ability to fight this scourge that we have online. I couldn't agree more, obviously. That's why I have a podcast and other collaboration efforts. But It's true. We all have different perspectives and points of view. And I think that is one of the many things that makes this industry both unique and also addicting and really special and different than a lot of others. Right. (laughs) There's also the downside of the emotional, the lack of whatever the opposite of the reward is. But I think that's the importance of having good friends in this industry because we understand that. If I were to make a list, I don't know how many would be on it, but it wouldn't be as big as everyone I know in the industry of people that I know I can go to that will totally just know exactly, right? I don't have to give a lot of backstory, right? Because we've all <laughs> we been in the trenches. We know you can share. <laughs> <laughs> right, that too. But, you know, we've all been in the trenches and so we get it. And sometimes it's just nice to be like, ah, I'm having a really hard time explaining to this client the importance of X or I'm starting to see this trend. Are you seeing it too? Like just that, the camaraderie, right? I, maybe it's like, battle buddies i don't know <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean fraud is not a competitive it should power <laughs> like you don't compete to push fraud to one of your competitors because that ultimately hurts you when they beef up their defenses and they come right back at you <laughs> and throughout, throughout my career you, i've stood on stage i've talked privately i've talked in boardrooms i've talked to work 
don't compete with your competitors on fraud. Collaborate, work mm-hmm. with them. If you can all push them out of the ecosystem at once, you're much better off. And there's big carve outs in all of the regulations and legislation around anti-competitiveness and things like that. They're happy for you guys to work together to stop electronic crime. Yeah. Don't compete on that. (laughs) Well, I mean, I couldn't agree more. There are still a small handful of companies that still believe that risk is a competitive advantage. And I was actually talking to someone yesterday who is going to come on the podcast soon, who worked for a very large company in the beginning of time. And they said the strategy they were absolutely told was send them to our competitors. Just make sure that fraud is off of our site and make them go somewhere else. That I've heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> I've oh, worked, yeah, you we may work the same company. <laughs> no, but similar time frame yeah, and yeah. similar. There's been quite the trajectory since you and I have started in this industry of also like business opinion of fraud and risk that has changed slowly, but is changing more and more where for a while it was just hand to hand combat. And now we have more tools and more things and all of that. There's still a lot of challenges and a lot of things that need to be improved, but There's something unique about being in this industry for so long. And I think you can relate to that too, that you start to kind of see the same stuff over again a little bit, or you start to see things differently. Um, Yeah. I mean, when we started, if you could get a SQL administrator to run queries for you, you were ahead of the game. Right. (laughs) Forget about risk tools. We didn't have these really large AI risk engines and case management tools and automatic data feeds. Like that did not exist. We had Excel spreadsheets and we had SQL queries. Seriously, uh, yes. We we made it work. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the biggest change is that risk has a place at the table in a lot of conversations that it didn't have 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. The numbers have gotten so large. The losses have become so public. The impact on customer experience mm-hmm. has been has become so excruciatingly unbearable that they've had no choice but to think about risk as a use case when it comes to how do you deal with your customers? How do you structure your products? And that change is really critical. If we had the same attitudes and we had the same tool sets that we had when I started, which was way before 2010. Yes, yeah, we'll be talking about that in a minute. (laughs) We will. We would be getting overrun right now. The scale, the number of attackers, the ways they're attacking are so much more sophisticated Mm -hmm. now than they've ever been. And so had we not evolved in our response, in our approach, mm-hmm. building the, these customer experiences, a lot of us would be out of business right now. The losses would be so great. The customer impact would be so great. They, we wouldn't be talking about inconvenience. We'd be talking about extinction level events for some of these companies because their losses would just be too great. Uh, and there were some of those. I mean, there yeah. have mm-hmm. been along the years. I mean, I'm, I don't know, I'm in between 15 and 20 years at this point. There have been losses strictly because of losses of companies that have gone under because of fraud. And I just talked last Thursday on the episode about these lawsuits hitting the companies that don't have an overarching structure of the car brands mm-hmm. telling them, assigning liability. I'm not at all advocating for the chargeback system. There's a lot of imperfect <laughs> things that need to be improved, but. I was kind of wondering where you're going with that. I've Brazil, known you long yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of issues there, but. For companies like Zelle and banks that mm-hmm. provide Zelle for OpenSea, the yeah. NFT marketplace, those companies don't have an overarching entity assigning liability. And right. so therefore, because they don't have the liability on them, they're, they haven't had to invest in as much prevention and in that mindset as e-commerce companies have. But now that the lawsuits and the headlines are coming out and their customers are used to being reimbursed through the chargeback system, through through credit card transactions, well, now it's getting really bad for them. So I actually found myself realizing, huh, maybe there's actually a good thing about the chargeback system. Well, I never thought I'd say, but, you know, weird yeah, thoughts yeah. coming I mean, The whole age. reversibility of trans- transactions is mm. an interesting one because it's really rooted in the consumer not really having any authorization ability in the transaction in the first place, right? Mm. Card number static, but stolen transaction can occur without the customer ever being involved in the transaction. Not so much for things like crypto. When we get into cryptocurrencies, we get into blockchain transactions, which is actually where I'm focusing my efforts now. Yeah. As we get into that stuff, it's hard to have a fraudulent transaction occur on your account, right? You had to have actually directed that transaction. So you have a lot more social engineering issues. You have a lot more 
data theft issues where you try mm-hmm. to steal someone's keys, things like that. And not having a mechanism for reversing those transactions is problematic. It does cause problems for consumers who can't get their money back. Mm-hmm. Um, if they spend crypto, I mean, there are many different e-commerce platforms that take crypto as a payment. And if that payment clears, which it does, because that's the way blockchain and crypto technology was designed Mm -hmm. and the product isn't delivered, what do you do? Right. You can't just call your cryptocurrency broker and say, hey, reverse the transaction. Right. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a lot of challenges there. Yeah. And similar to what we were dealing with, with marketplace new models and business Mm -hmm. models and everything else in 2009, 2010. So are Web3 companies now going through that as well, where they're not focusing on that as much or they're not asserting their efforts there until there's a huge fire and there's a lot that a lot of damage unfortunately that can't be undone when there is customer trust broken and because they don't have the liability assigned to them there's not that incentive to do a lot of prevention because it's all upside for the marketplace when they're getting a cut of the deal so it's it's interesting yeah yeah only so far because i mean the one thing you have to keep in mind with a marketplace is that it only exists as a marketplace as long as consumers trust it. And so all of the marketplaces that have ever existed throughout time have had this quandary. How do I manage fraud risk? And how do I manage customer expectations? And how do I manage me taking a cut of the middle puts me in squarely in the middle of the transaction where I might put consumer safety precautions in place that will reimburse a buyer if the seller doesn't come through. Well, I'm potentially going to take that loss. Yeah. The seller doesn't. That's how you, you build know. trust with the buyers. Yeah. Because but, otherwise but, they're going to be like, well, why would I give you my money if I'm trusting that there's going to be somebody who gives me that item on, on the other side? It's funny because letting people into inside baseball, I completely showed up for class unprepared and didn't have an outline this time with the move and just life in general. But I told Robert, I'm so glad it's him because I knew we could just start talking about anything and that's what we have. But I feel like at some point we should probably tell people like who you are and where your perspective comes from. I mean, I don't know, details. So just kind of starting out, I mean, I obviously know these things, but it's well, and actually, I don't know as much about your career pre-2010. So first question, how did you get started in online fraud? None of us get into it on purpose. So what's your story for getting into online fraud? I lucked into it. So so I was, I don't know, early 2000, 2001. You get this far back and the, the years start merging into each other. Oh, I know. Um, so <laughs> so let, me, let me just back up, give you a little history. I started my first startup while I was still in high school. And I was also taking junior college classes at the time because I figured out a a little tweak in the system where if you took a junior college class and actually while you're in high school, it counted towards one and a half credits for every every college credit. And it meant I got a jumpstart on my AA and like all these other things. So by the time I graduated from high school, I had an active business running a startup, an internet business. I had probably halfway through towards my AA and then I got my diploma and I made a decision to drop out of college. The startup that I was working on was doing well and I was enjoying it. I was learning so much and I just kept doing it. So uh, what was the startup fact, doing? Were you selling items or were you uh, we were connecting fancy. small businesses to the Internet and we were doing e-commerce? in 1994, right? And so we weren't taking credit cards. We were taking orders and those orders would be converted. We wrote a fax gateway and we faxed the orders to the customers so they didn't have computers. And then they (laughs) called the customer up and got their their credit card number and they ran it through the terminal like they normally would a phone order. You know, this is before SSL. This is before (laughs) any of that sort of protections. None of this stuff. There's no fraud issues at at that point. Heck, I remember not running firewalls in front of some of these systems. They're just connected to the internet because, well, you could. Nothing that I would ever advocate today. Anyway, fast forward a little bit. I ended up I ended up working for a regional bank. So they're actually a national bank, but they were regionally located here in the Bay Area. Heavy presence here. And they were building out online banking and online loan origination. And so they needed someone who understood internet technology and could not just project manage, but also architect and product manage and do all those sort of things to bring together these sort of assets. And I did, I launched them for the organization as a startup within a fortune 500 weird, but (laughs) it's great having (laughs) almost unlimited checkbook. And I was done with it. It was live. We were working, we were in multiple data centers. We tested it. Disaster recovery worked all. It was happy. And we started seeing phishing. We started seeing the precursors to malware. And no one in the organization really understood what it was. And so I said, oh, well, I'm sort of out of things to do. Let me look at that problem. That was 2004. And, it was, and you've been doing it ever since. 
And it was all downhill after that. Yeah. So <laughs> I ended up building out an anti-phishing and consumer security organization within the bank focused in on consumer endpoint security. And we started playing around with things like virtual, what we called virtual ATMs, which was like a hardened application on the customer's desktop with a VPN connection back. And there was no URL bar. You just opened this application and you were connected to the bank. That never made it to market. But we were throwing things at the wall. We were really getting innovative. And about that time, we had 2006 or so, the company was sold to another bank and we went through the whole acquisition. It was my first merger and acquisition. But not the last. (laughs) Unfortunately, no. I think your bank account would say otherwise compared to those of us who have not gone through an M&A. Just saying. Yeah, they're tough though. They're really yeah, tough. Yeah, 100%. And, and just put yeah. it that way. Yeah, you they're know, not you, all you, easy, right? When you have a merger of equals, they're tough because mm-hmm. you always have a displaced organization. You always have a displaced yeah. group. And so you have to say goodbye to some of your coworkers. And the unfortunate part of starting to see that right now with mm-hmm. the economy the way it is, where some people stay and some people have to move on. That's the tough part I'm talking about. Right, you know? and, and, I get and that. So, I do get um, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I worked there for quite a while and through the merger and acquisition and decided it was time to look for something else. And I went over to this little company that eBay had just acquired called StubHub. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that company. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're yeah. still around. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I think I know a couple of people that have worked there, you know, past yeah. and present. <laughs> a couple of people. Yeah. And true to form, they were looking for someone on the infrastructure side to help rebuild data centers and to stabilize the infrastructure and build redundancy and all those sort of things and have a skill set in that. And so I did and was done and they started having a fraud problem. (laughs) And so they had amassed a small team of customer service agents. They did have a manager that was focused on those employees, but the program was getting, was going to need to be much larger, right? The company was growing, the fraud rates were growing, and there were a lot more vectors of attack that were becoming apparent as the product emerged and evolved. And I had a little bit of experience in that. And so I interviewed for the position and ended up picking up the position running trust and safety for that organization. And it sounds a lot like it's all leadership. The biggest piece of my success was finding the right people. At the time, they had hired a number of customer service agents that were really focused on fraud. And the vast majority of them stayed with the team, even through when I left. They had a fantastic manager that was there and she had trained them and she had worked out a lot of the precursor capabilities and the systems in place to do initial risk. And they were working. They just need to be grown. And so it meant working with senior executives to get funding and picking the right products and doing the integration and working with the technology teams and convincing people, getting people on board with spending potentially millions of dollars on tools to protect against what at the time were millions of dollars in lost transactions. But we saw that the problems were going to get worse. And so that was a big focus. And I spent a number of years there. And I think that's where most people know me from who might be listening now or, or recognize the name. We did a lot of work while we were at StubHub in outreach. We yeah. did a lot of work with organizations like CMP and MRC and some other more private gatherings with mm-hmm. uh, uh, law enforcement agencies and things like that. We built a prosecutions team. We built a data science team. We mm-hmm. built a product team. We ended up building an international operation to deal with international customers and international fraud. And we had huge success over those years. And then I moved on. And I eventually ended up at uh, a smaller startup that was focused on identification of consumers. And the company was called, a little company called New Data Security was eventually acquired by MasterCard. And I stuck around there as well. And more recently, I just decided I needed a break. (laughs) So I've been on a bit of a sabbatical for a number of months and really focusing in on blockchain technology, really understanding the ins and outs and technology around that stuff and figuring out what I do next. And of course, this is an audio podcast, so you can't see the raised eyebrow. (laughs) (laughs) But I can affirm that it's there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was a really good, like, overarching of who you are. And I want to dive in, obviously, to different bits and parts of that. I got to know you when you were at Subhub, I think, towards the beginning-ish. I believe, yeah. And just to clarify, or just to kind of better understand, I think when you came on, and this happens a lot in the trajectory of startups when it comes to fraud, that customer service agents are handling it. A lot of them do a great job, but a lot of it's reactive, right? It's not strategy focused. It's not overarching risk stacks and strategy on the prevention side. It's a combination of 
researching claims from people calling saying, who are you and why did you charge my credit card to maybe starting to dive through some Excel sheets and maybe if they're lucky doing some SQL. Is that kind of what you walked into at, at that stage or was yeah, there more? Yeah. There's an acronym that I use in this and it's probably not completely accurate, but it's close enough. It's called BFI, Brute Force and Ignorance. There was a lot of that, right? There's a lot of SQL scripts. There are a lot of Excel tables and pivot tables and things like that people were building because they just didn't know any better. Yeah. And it wasn't that they weren't intelligent. These no. people were super oh, yeah. smart. But the reason why it starts in customer service is that is the place where you can pull in a large number of humans mm -hmm. to throw out a problem. That is often why we see a lot of folks come from customer service into fraud. It's also really, if you don't just conscript people from the call center, but you're more selective, fraud teams can actually recruit from the call oh, center yeah. by listening to the questions mm -hmm. that they're asking, looking for I the ones that are referring. I was recruited from the call center by the yeah, department, totally. 100%, because I was asking the questions. I was fascinated. I was, for a while there, it was like, I had a hammer and everything was a nail. And so I was sending a lot of things for us. I've seen that before. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. Yeah, when you get really excited and you catch one bad guy and then you think they're all bad guys. But yeah, I mean, I think that also another reason why it starts in customer service is because they're ground zero, right? They're the ones who are getting the phone calls from victims or yeah, other things. Yeah. And they also have a pretty good understanding of how different parts of the business work. That's Yeah, cute. yeah. yeah. And then you hire on the people that have curiosity and want to solve the problems and the puzzles and they want to think outside the box. And that is your perfect analyst who can then go up into product manager and other things. Yeah, it's critical to understand the business, right? Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of folks fail to think through why when, mm -hmm. I mean, then they focus on what someone is defrauding me. They're using stolen credit cards. They're Why are they defrauding you? Why? What are they after? Why are they choosing you? Why are they choosing the techniques that they are using against you? Answer those questions and you can solve the problem much quicker. Yeah, 100%. How are, yeah, why are they targeting your company? How have they mm -hmm. set up a monetization channel? Who are they selling to? All of those things. They're great pieces of that puzzle. And yeah. especially when you're starting out in a company that has a totally new business model. And around that time, marketplaces were new. I mean, eBay was established-ish. <laughs> But everybody yeah. wanted to be the eBay of something, right? So it was like, we're the eBay of this. We're the eBay of that. Well, StubHub was the eBay of tickets. And they, they uh, yeah, and yeah. they were obviously acquired by them as well. But tickets are so much harder because they're digital items, right? You don't even have a shipping address. They're instant delivery. They're now. Tickets, they are yeah. now. That's true. They that's weren't true. always. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, right? But even with that this, wasn't a protection. Right. No, no, no. Because just yeah. because, it, well, because you're not the one shipping it, it's someone else shipping it. You're not in control. There were so many lessons learned on the ground oh during that time. It's yeah. not like there's ever been a situation where it's, okay, let's think about this marketplace or this type of business model for the next three years. Let's work out every single risk there could possibly be. No, most of the time you're starting on the business side and then, oh, you have your oh shit moment, as I call it. And then you're worried about that. Yeah, I've been through enough startups now that I, it, it is a common pattern. Risk is not a minimum viable product use case, yeah, <laughs> right? right? Unless you're selling a risk product. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, your need to take on risk or mitigate risk more appropriately is directly proportional to your success in market. And so as you become successful, as you draw more customers, you will draw the eyes and the attention of malicious actors. That's just mm -hmm. the way it works. They are directly related and proportional to one another. <laughs> and especially um, if there is a blast of media attention. And I sure. dealt with that yeah. with Bagbar or Steel when they were mm -hmm. featured in Sex in the City, the movie, it was like almost you could literally chart the fraud with everything <laughs> else. It was like everyone thought, ooh, I can just order 20 of these and put them on eBay and then never give them back Turn and them. let my card go bad, right? Yeah. And same with you guys. It's And I've said this many times where if a company can make money on a product or service, so can a bad actor. And but you're absolutely right. I mean, it also almost doesn't even make logical sense for a company at the beginning beginning when they are focusing on the product and they don't have sales or anything. And you just said this a little bit ago before we started recording. That if you're not making money, there's nothing to lose. So you're not thinking about it. Now, I will say I have been really happy that I've had a few clients recently. I just talked to one this morning, actually. I mean, a prospective client. I don't yeah. want to get my cart before the horse here, <laughs> but I don't want to jinx it. But you know, they have three or four months before they're rolling out their e-commerce line and they know that there's going to be fraud. That is rare. I mean, they were like apologizing. Someone's experience a short time there. Frame. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were apologizing. It was a short time frame. I'm like, 
no. I mean, I'm used to people calling and going, holy crap, like we're losing all this money. Where's your magic wand? Can you take fix it right, right now? And so you've got one hand on the orders coming in and you've got another on how do we save the future orders? How do we create the scalable process and strategy to make this not as hand combat and make this a little more manageable? And it's a process, but I'm encouraged by that, but it, they are an established company that have seen, they have experienced losses, just not on e-commerce. Well, I, leading to that, you're actually pointing back to what we we're talking about a little while ago, where how has the industry changed? So many of the people who initially understood yes. fraud or learned fraud, right? The hard way. No matter what department they were in. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. they're infusing their way into other companies as their careers develop. Mm -hmm. um, I, one of the things we were talking about sort of pre-call here was I am absolutely floored, impressed, and in awe of people that I met as this is my first time in MRC yes. are now standing up and leading the charge in front of large organizations. I am so like, it makes me so proud I know. to have met these people and for them to have developed their careers to where they are. And I, it just absolutely validates collaboration mm -hmm. and of these ecosystems of professionals that work with each other and help each other. Everybody helps each other build up, right? And seeing that just five to 10 years later, it's yeah. amazing. It, it's just amazing. I could not agree more with that. It's so magical. And I have been, seriously, <laughs> and I've even gone that further a little bit because with working at the MRC and then also CNP, I've been in charge of conference content for the last 10 years. And there's been several people, mostly women, but, you know, uh, men as well, that I kind of had to like coax and say, hey, I, you're going to be a great speaker. I know you are more than you realize. You, I firmly believe that anyone that's been in fraud more than even a couple of years has knows something that other people don't. And I think it's one of my skills that I can usually pull that out. And so, and identify it fairly quickly. And it's magic to see like some of those people that I had to like beg and say, hey, this is not for me. This is for you. It's not about me getting to say that your company is speaking at my conference. I know this is good for your development. I know something. And now they're speaking at every conference and they're just doing so many things. And they're seen as Hard leaders. for me to get a speaking slot now. I know. <laughs> and I'm totally cool with that. I love the diversity That's of true. voices. You used to be one of the only ones, as you should be. Yeah. yeah. Like, right. I, no, I, I love making room. Like the fact that there's this diversity of voices. When I say diversity, it's not just the number of people. Right. It is gender, it is mm -hmm. background, it is everything. This is one of the most diverse, technically adjacent spaces that I've ever worked in. And it has a long way to go. It oh, has yeah. a long way to go. But it is so much more advanced than some of the other organizations. And I think that when we look at where folks came from, mm -hmm. the folks came up through customer service, which just tends to be skewed to very specific demographics. That's what leads to having more diverse folks in executive positions or leadership positions now. Those people have grown their careers. I love yeah. it. Well, and we need diversity of thought. Both, oh my God, yes. <laughs> both, at the, both at the tree level, like both at the, at the manual review level or at the transaction level or at the specific merchant level, as well as at the forest level, right? As well as when we're everything. talking, yeah, as long as whenever we're talking about like strategies or this or that, or, oh, have you thought about this or that, whatever, if everybody had the same experience throughout life, as well as in their career, we wouldn't have advancement. And yeah. so I've always been a proponent of that as well, because whether it's life experience, because of your race, your gender, your nationality, whatever, or it's your diversity in your background, right? You came from law enforcement, you came from the issuing side, the acquiring side, the, the IT yeah. side, whatever it is. Right, right. We need that. I love talking to people that have had different background before and then come into here because, or come into fraud prevention because we think about things differently. We have solved other problems that could be solved in a similar way, just all of that stuff. And I, it doesn't surprise me, you and I both agree with that. But you I know, can't shake my head violently enough. <laughs> I know, right? But I will say you really were a pioneer of some really 
big things that now are considered best practices in companies yeah. for scaling. And that's what I want to dive into a little bit today. And then you sure. thankfully secured a second person for a follow-up interview at another time who you guys will tell <laughs> so many stories. I wasn't sure if he'd be able to because of his current company, but the stories you two will have it will be so much fun for my listeners. But one of the things you pioneered a few things that I literally was just thinking of like, oh yeah, that's right. He also did this. So Two of the things that I thought of that are now kind of commonplace are consortiums through mm -hmm. fraud providers. You yep. were one of three people that spearheaded the need for that before anyone else did. You pressured your provider to create it and they did. I mean, there was a huge sort market of. share. Well, <laughs> I mean, there were three very big brands in event ticketing that said, this is what we need. We, we need to be able to we share data. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that's the thing is I can't take credit for those things. You but know, they're, you were they're... a part of them for sure. sure. I totally, mean, you totally. definitely really were a huge part of that. I mean, yes, there were other people that Thanks. we both know <laughs> of as well that I won't yeah. name for anonymity sake, but you definitely were a huge part of that. There would not, I mean, may, there probably would have been consortiums at some point, but there hadn't been before, before the three yeah. biggest no, event ticketing companies went to their fraud provider and said, we need to share bad guy information. I mean, yeah. yeah. I think that my contribution there was having a technical background. Mm. My contribution there was being able to say, not only do we need to share it, here's how we want to share it. Yeah. And being able to prescribe to them versus have them sort of try and figure it out. That was my contribution. I had fantastic competitors. I had the competitors we had in that space had fantastic leaders. I'm not going to name drop anybody. Y'all know who they were if you're mm -hmm. around at that time. There were just fantastic people in the space that wanted to make life better for our customers, mm -hmm. all of our customers. And I was able to use some privilege I had, which was the technical knowledge and my position to really push through things that might have been more difficult for others to do. And that's cool, but I wasn't alone. There were a lot of people that were, they were standing shoulder to shoulder with me pushing that ball bill. It was, I mean, looking back in hindsight, I'm so lucky I got to even witness a lot of that or even some of that from the sidelines. There was a lot um, of cool stuff we did. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, I mean, another cool thing, I mean, I, I can use so many other words for it, but I continually still use you as an example. Whenever merchants say, yeah, we won't work with law enforcement. There's no ROI there, or there's really no point in investigating post-transaction fraud. It, we oh just wha play whack-a-mole at the prevention level. And then anybody that steals from us, we put on our negative list and we move on. I continually use you as an example as to why that may not be the best idea always. Now, for some companies, I understand resources and size for a smaller company. But what would you say to those companies? And what example would you use? Because I, I mean. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I don't want to take too much thunder podcast. for this next episode <laughs> we end up recording later. Well, right. But um, I do think but, it's good but, to share a little yeah, bit of totally. it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not inexpensive. Pursuing fraudsters is not, not cheap. It doesn't have to be expensive, but it's not cheap. You need somebody who's dedicated to it. And that is someone that's being taken off of other things. Now, there is a bit of a hidden ROI in here that most organizations of significant volume who are seeing fraudulent transactions are already getting subpoenas from law enforcement. They already have people that are talking to law enforcement and they're gathering data and they're sending it back to them. If that is all you're doing, you're losing an opportunity mm. to engage a free resource in the government <laughs> to help you out <laughs> because, and this is not legal advice. This is not compliance advice. Do not take anything I say and go do it. Go talk to your attorneys first to make sure this works within your, not only the framework of the organization you're with, but also with the policies of your organization, right? right. So there might be a regulatory issue. It might just be a company policy issue, but talk to somebody legal first. You're in a really good position to tie information together in mm -hmm. responding to a request for information. So if an officer is calling you because they want information on a transaction or serious transactions because of fraud, if there are other transactions there that they might be interested in as well, there might be a two-way conversation you can have, mm -hmm. right? Again, speak with your attorneys before right. you start talking to anybody else, <laughs> but explore that with your organization. If that's something they'll even allow you to do, because you are in a position to make that case larger for that officer, for that investigator, for that person who's trying to solve a crime. And in doing so, you can bring those cases above the minimum thresholds for prosecutors to take cases to court. 
right? To make take cases forward. It might be a $500 transaction. You might have 30 of them, right? So when you that sum that up. Key. It's yeah. not, so law enforcement is not, when they're prosecuting someone, it's not just for the loss that you took. It, you combine all attempts because if yep. they attempted burglary of your company, that yep. adds up. Yep. Yep. So, so yeah, if you I can tie sure things together. That. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So if you can tie these things together, you can get an officer to expand their subpoena to pull more data in that would lead them to the, the entities that are committing fraud or, or electronic crime. There are things you can do to work with them within the guidelines of the law, within the guidelines of regulatory restraint, things like that. Don't be afraid to talk to your compliance attorneys about it and see if you can't work something out so that you can get these cases pitched. Because when you help them with their cases, they will often take your call when you need something big, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing is there are in most major, most major metropolitan areas, there are law enforcement groups like react teams that will they'll respond to cyber intrusions and fraud issues and breaches and things like that. And they will send in investigators and they'll help you collect the data and they'll help you put the cases together. These teams are made up in multiple jurisdictions. They might be FBI, they might be secret service, they might be local police, they might be state troopers, whatever happens to be part of that consortium. They're there to help for these sort of issues. And so the more you have relations with law enforcement prosecutors, the more you have the ability to draw them in when you really do need help. That's how we built our investigations team. We started by asking questions of the people sending us subpoenas. When we started to pull the pieces together, we could build cases across our organization that were large enough for prosecutors to take seriously. And because in the ticketing industry, we had such great cooperation between big competitors in the market. I'm doing these big monkey arms right now. No one can see it, but increase. There might be an outtake reel at some point here. Right. Um, so, so when you have these big competitors in the market who can talk to each other and say, hey, are you having these similar sort of issues? Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to send an officer to you who may subpoena some records that are similar. You, know, mm -hmm. you don't even have to talk about who they were, right. what they were. You don't have to cross any ethical or legal boundaries or regulatory boundaries. You're, it's not anti-competitive. You're saying, do you have this problem too? If so, I have somebody who's really interested in investigating it. And being able to send those people back and forth is super important because you're now able to have not just the losses in your organization, but potentially to bring in the losses in other organizations. Nothing gets a, a state or federal prosecutor out of bed and pass their coffee more than a case that they can go public and say, this big company and this big company all work together to get these guys. It's powerful. What they're doing, you know, law enforcement, prosecutors, they all have ROIs as well. They've got mm -hmm. to meet certain qualifications in order to bring things forward. And the more you can do to help package those cases together that are probably from the same actor, the better off everybody's going to be going after those individuals. And at one point we ended up owning a boat, a party boat, <laughs> we, you know, cars, all kinds of things that were because then sold at auction. Restitution. Yeah, because they were seized. Yeah. yeah, they were seized by, we were able to track down individuals who are committing crime through or with law enforcement. And they were able to not only incarcerate, prosecute them, but also seize their assets. And if you want to talk about an ROI, there's a direct ROI where the fraud stopped, mm -hmm. right? No more impact to the customers, no more impact to the business. And we were able to take their toys and sell them and get some cash for them. And I'll add one more ROI. You guys were able, your comms team realized, and I know you were a very big part of that. And that was not <laughs> an easy conversation. I mean, seriously, uh, Robert should teach a masterclass on like how to be convincing to cross-functional departments that are not always the easiest or the most uh, <laughs> yeah, friendly to I, fraud departments, but you convinced your comms team as rightfully should, that this is really awesome to be able to brag about in giant publications. I mean, if anyone yeah, wants yeah. to Google StubHub arrests or StubHub, there's some good ones and they're like international from those days for sure. So just for full disclosure, I had left StubHub yes, prior to the large international ring bus. That's right. And so I was not actually constrained by their PR team. I remember, yeah, that's right. You were at another company for a little bit and you were, that's, yeah. I remember that. But even before that, the prosecutors were able to come out and say, totally, we totally, worked with totally. these big companies. And the benefit of that wasn't just you being able to take a victory lap and slap that on your mother's refrigerator. It was that right. it got posted throughout the dark web of, hey, mm -hmm. don't mess with these guys. Look, they're Fraud actually prosecuting. 50% the next day. Yeah. 
fraud fell 50% the next day and stayed that way. I want to make sure we highlight that. Like that to me is the ROI because I remember like it had a massive impact to the volume because the number of e-commerce companies that actually prosecute is so low that they're just going to signal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very strong signal and it says, don't mess with us. Mm -hmm. And then Unfortunately, they do go other places, but they're, <laughs> well, that's a very good point, right? They might train some people, but right. Well, and that's the key. And I'm very much looking forward to having our friend Eric Bowles on a future podcast, hopefully soon, because yeah. you guys will be able to tell all the stories like the time that StubHub owned a party boat. And there Indirectly. Some, well, right, right. Yeah. And there were like some crazy sports cars. Like I remember some of the stories back then. It was fun, but gosh, those old days. Yeah. But I mean, I think that it, you really pioneered that. It was something that nobody else had really done before, but you were like, yeah. we need it was to hard, do though. this. Oh, it was, yeah. I, I spent a lot of time away from my family and I had young kids during that time. And after, I, I think my son was probably six or seven when all this was going down somewhere mm-hmm. in that age mm-hmm. when I was doing a lot of travel. Yeah. And he had come back, he go, did you get the bad guys? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh no, not this time, not this time. <laughs> when that last bust happened, mm-hmm. I could not drive home fast enough to tell him we got him. I'm like fanning my eyes. Like I'm hard. I'm in a hard the time. Parental, I know the parental pride, right? Because but, I mean, honestly, oh so many of us, we focus on just writing and that is critically yeah. important, yeah. but it doesn't yeah. always feel like a huge win. It doesn't always feel like something you can go home and tell your kids. So he I told totally his like as a parent. Aww. He went to school and told his teacher. So cute. She's like, so... are you in law enforcement? Right. I don't. <laughs> no, 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 no. I have explained. <laughs> no, I work for StubHub. <laughs> but I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, you guys I, yeah. traveled a lot. You did, did a lot of almost public relations with every law enforcement within every metropolitan city. You traveled to all the, either you or Eric would travel to all the EFs, which are the Electronic Crimes Task Force that are in every metropolitan U.S. that yeah. not enough e-commerce companies go to, especially not e-commerce fraud. Your company may go from a cybersecurity perspective, but that is very beneficial. That's where the FBI, the Secret Service, DHS right, right. and others along with so public and private sector get together and talk about trends and things and and a lot of cases can come out of that but also a lot of camaraderie and friendships and so the next time you have a case in that area you know who to call and you pick up the phone you call them and you bs for a little bit and ask how the kids are and then you say hey I have a new case I want you to investigate. <laughs> um, but when they know that you wrap it up in a bow and you hand it on a silver platter and you guys have done your work they're happy yeah. to take it because to your point, they have an ROI. They have bosses yep. to please, you know, all the way up. I mean, I got to I got to work on one federal case and that was fun. So one thing to point out, we talk about bows and all wrapped up and things right. like that. Again, there are laws to be complied with. Mm, there are absolutely. regulations to be complied with. Data there's, privacy, there's right. Lots of data privacy and stuff in there. So there's a fine line mm. between cooperating law enforcement and acting on behalf of law enforcement. Hmm. And hmm. you have to be very careful that you're on one side of the line, not the other, especially if the cases are going to prosecution. So it isn't about just go out, rush out and give them all the data. Right. You do need to talk to your attorneys. You do need to talk to your compliance folks, regulatory folks, make sure that you are on the right side of that line and that you are not crossing the line and becoming an agent of the officer of the state in, in, right. in some form. And so, yeah, if you're unsure, talk to one of your attorneys. When in doubt. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, it's definitely there's you could inadvertently break a law while trying to get someone else convicted for breaking a law. Yeah, privacy regulations are a lot more now than they were then. So just be careful with that stuff. But cooperation, asking questions, seeing what you can do to help them. Mm-hmm. gather as much information that they need to get to the person they're really after within the confines of the law is super important. And you were talking about us visiting different officers, prosecutors, and things like that. We just basically looked up the local field offices anywhere mm-hmm. we went to a conference and offered to drop by and just say hi, because mm-hmm. we did business in all those cities. Right. And we had events in all those cities. And so we built a, a relationship with almost all the field offices for the Secret Service, because, you know, one of the folks that was on my team was an ex-Secret Service agent. But right. we talked to the ECTS, we talked to the FBI, we talked to all of them. 
if we ended up in a city for a conference, we rang up the local law enforcement and say, hey, we're in town. We do business here. We have events that we deal with. We just want to introduce ourselves. It pays off in dividends. It yeah. really does. Well, know? and to and, your point, I imagine in those conversations, you're not saying, hey, here are all these names and emails and addresses that attack us. No, you're talking yeah. about high level. Hey, this is what fraud. I mean, I remember having some of those conversations with Secret Service and FBI around those times as well, like 2011, 12, 13, 14. When they were still trying to wrap their head around e-commerce fraud, we were having to teach them, you know, what does it look like, not just for in general, but what does it look like for my specific company? Because for a marketplace with digital goods or it was becoming digital goods is very different than a traditional retailer that's providing the goods themselves and shipping it out. And so just even giving them those, you know, understanding that then they might see something with your company name on it somewhere and go, Mm -hmm. Oh, I remember meeting that guy. Yes, that's the key, right? Right. When your name comes across the table again, they go, oh, that sounds familiar. Look at your subpoena list. Look at people are sending you subpoenas. Hmm. Where are they coming from, right? Do you get them from certain parts of the country? Do you get them from certain agencies? Those are the people you want to ring up first. Because those are the people who care or will do something about. They're already familiar with you in some way, shape or form. Yeah, That's a really good Um, advice. That's a good way to mm -hmm. start. One of these days, I want you to teach a class on this, but that's a whole other conversation. I'm going to make it happen because, I mean, you did pioneer a lot of these things. And I think there's a lot of lessons learned in all of those, both the exciting lessons that had a great payoff and the ones where you fall on your face. Oh, there were plenty of those. Let me tell you. I know it's that not all work. sunshine and rainbows. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. okay. Next thing. It's something that I think a lot of people can relate to whenever they're trying new processes and such. Well, so and, just, and again, I want to make sure just yeah, before we move on no, from please. that, I didn't do it all by myself. No. I had my, my focus was hiring the right people yeah. and giving them the bandwidth and the, and the latitude to get the job done. No, anyone who stands up here and says, I did all the work is lying to you. These are team efforts. These are always team efforts. Mm-hmm. There's no lone wolves in this. There really isn't. No. And you're so humble. That's why I give you credit. But you're right. Oh. I also know the other people that were involved in. I mean, I would read Miss Beaver, Mist, and Frick. You know, we're really both going to cry when I mention this name. <laughs> but oh, one yeah. of the best people that you ever hired and one of my favorite humans in yours, too, is Ryan Will. And for people who have listened to this yeah. podcast almost every episode, I've mentioned him a couple of times. He one of both of our closest friends and so incredibly smart and witty and just amazing and very big on collaboration and education and really had a huge drive. And unfortunately, he passed away uh, in 2019 in a very tragic freak accident. It's one that really makes you appreciate the fragility of life because I thought we'd be retiring together. And I'm sorry, because I know now we're both like, uh, like very overcome. But I just I'm sitting in the exact place when I learned of his death. I'm literally sitting in the place where I so it's a little. Yeah. Every time I drive by the place, I was getting my oil changed in my car when you called me with the news. And Mm. I was on an intersection and I thought, oh, Robert, like what's going on? And every time I would, I mean, I've now moved away from there, but every time I would drive by that intersection, I would think of him and you. It was like I miss him every day. I really do. But in 2020, my daughter was born and we definitely used his name. Her, I know. Right. We named her Ryan and that's where the name comes from. Yeah. She's got big shoes to fill, but at the same time, I mean, she's her own. She's a different person. She's her own person. And it was the be. name that stuck. It was on the short list and it, it we met her. It was the right name. And parents she's, know that, I assume. I have no contact with his parents. Mm. I would love to be able to tell them. I just don't know how to get a hold of them. Actually, I lost my, the contact information. Oh, okay. I'm, I might know someone who does, but we'll I would love. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the sad thing is there was a group of us that really wanted to memorialize him. And then the plan was to memorialize him at the next MRC because that's where we'd all be in the same place. Because we're Damn all you COVID. <laughs> yes. And then COVID came around. Oh. So Holly and Brian and I did raise a toast to him Good. at MRC. Good. And I tried to have his name live on because he was a huge force in my career and in my life. I wouldn't be doing many any of this peoples. and many, many other peoples. peoples too. Yeah. And he was such a gift to this industry that even if people didn't get a chance to meet him, it's... You've met his legacy. Oh You've my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I remember hearing that there was like a group of ex Facebook employees that were on like a Facebook group or something like that. And they all have a huge threat about Ryan. You know, like he just he so had so people. much influence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so just kind of 
continuing down your journey and taking a weird right turn because I could talk about <laughs> Ryan forever and it's sad, but I know he would tell us to stop and that life goes on. He wouldn't like it, but he tough. He doesn't get a say now. We can talk about how awesome he is, but you guys both worked together at StubHub and built something incredible. And we did. you did hire a lot of great people. It wasn't just Ryan. There is a long mm -hmm. list. But 72 people. Wow. I didn't realize it was that big, but I don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I work with some of them still that in different areas, whether they're still there or in other places. It, and there was, it was just such a, such a unique group that was really trailblazing a lot of things that have now become kind of just normal best practices for everyone. But when you made the decision to leave StubHub, actually, wait, Ryan went first, right? Is that how it went? I think if I remember correctly where I was. I, I can't remember. I, I think I went first, actually. I think you? ran shortly after me. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't remember. I thought it was. Yeah. So you guys went to New Data. You went from the merchant side to the vendor side, which is unique. And why don't you share a little bit about what you learned there and why you did just all of that. And not, Yeah. And, so he went there first. Okay. I'm sorry. What was that? Oh, I said in like a medium-sized nutshell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know we're running a lot of time. Right, it'll yeah. be a really long episode. But you can edit some down. But he went first. He went about a year before I joined. I went, I had some friends that were trying to restart a startup. And right. word of the wise, don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't restart. Don't revive a startup that failed. Don't, 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 don't. <laughs> yeah, you have a lot of good advice for startups too, because you've been on that. You've yeah. been on both sides of it, the failures and the successes. Someone, I was just talking to somebody about this recently. You can't restart a company with the prior team there. Oh, yeah. And mm. that was a mistake. <laughs> so there were not Unfortunately, some startups, over. they fail because of the team. I've been part of a couple of those where the idea was fantastic and execution not so much up, but the execution yeah. yeah right exactly right, right. so anyway there were good people at the company they yeah. kept the good people but you need a sea change to really mm. change a company and that just didn't happen but uh i took a leave and i uh, started looking for another job and i happened to run into ryan and we were talking and he introduced me to the ceo of new data and we hit it off and yeah i started my first day of work with new data was the first day of money 20 i remember that i picture <laughs> you guys in those hats oh my gosh wasn't that yeah. at that one at money 2020 when you wore like the fuzzy fur hats for a it wasn't money 2020 mrc we won, right. won the solution award that year and we were wearing those funny hats i wish <laughs> i had mine still i had loaned it to one of our customers and it never came back to me so oh sad. man like <laughs> but I had the photos. yeah i know i wish i still had it <laughs> yeah and i don't know what happened to the one that, that ryan had but it was a wild ride working with him we were the head of pr essentially we were the ones speaking to everybody and we were yeah. at the conferences and we were the ones that were trying down for the customers i gotta say i like the service provider side, not because of any reason you might think you get to help way more companies than you could mm. working for a merchant. And so I was able to take my experience from StubHub and some of the other places I had worked and I could provide it to more organizations more effectively from a service provider side, right in the same way, right? Yeah. I mean, the oh, two of yeah. us, we spent a lot of time just showing, teaching educating and infusing some of that experience into the products and into how they were delivered. Ryan was responsible for customer success, getting customers set up and using products properly and getting as much out of them as possible, which was his absolute gift. Oh my gosh, he was so good at that. Yeah. And I think that that's really, it's so important. There are some solution providers who have hired people from the merchant side and I highly recommend it because it is so different. And you can usually tell when an organization doesn't have someone from the merchant side, you can tell in their marketing, you can tell in their sales conversations, you can tell because they're not, I use this Those analogy. people are listened to. They're not just there, they're listened to. Well, There's as the, a big yes. difference between those two things. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah, they're the ones that product is asking, hey, is this functional or is that functional? They're the ones that marketing is yeah. asking, hey, what do people care about? They're the ones, I mean, I did used to joke with a few of you, and I probably said to you too, that they were hiring token merchants, but that, wasn't <laughs> that just, happened. It, it wasn't just to parade them out. I mean, there were a couple yeah. of companies that I don't know how effective those were, but for the most part, they, they hired somebody who had built the program all the way through for a company. You, I can speak from experience. You learned so it's a crash course. It's so powerful. It really is. And 
you know, you can really tell when organizations don't have that in that. And that's something that my consultancy, I've started to work with a few of them and help them learn and change in that in the marketing, but in the product as well. But also like I can relate to the joy of working with so many merchants and other companies. Once I worked for MRC and had that ability, that was what I wanted to do for eternity. I mean, we'll see, but, and it was because I got to work with incredible people like you and learn from you guys and just learn like a piece of this. And I would cross pollinate information, right? Wow. Robert and these other people are creating a consortium, leveraging their fraud provider to be able to, you know, essentially share negative lists without actually sharing them with each other. Wow, these guys are doing this, these guys are doing that and kind of cross pollinating it, especially 10, 15 years ago, that was, that was my joy. I mean, it was so much fun. And I have so many crazy stories of like, humongous companies that I've introduced to each other or like weird yeah. stuff like that. But also like just those friendships that come out of that. Cause like I said, we're definitely like battle buddies at this point. And <laughs> you know, we've we've been through we've been yeah. in each other's lives through marriages and divorces and children being born and all those things too. I mean it's crazy Life. for me to think of your son at six. I mean I remember that, but it's just because now 17 he's 17 now. Yeah. I drove him to his first internship on Monday. <laughs> Well, and he's a little you too, because he's been entrepreneurial and he's been, you know, he's, he's well, he, a little. He towers over me at six foot. Oh my gosh. That's... Yeah. He got all the tall parts of his parents. Wow. <laughs> it may have met me. I'm not that tall. So. Well, and I am. So I usually like tower over <laughs> some people, but yeah. So I, but yeah, it's just, it's crazy. That's something that for people who are in, you know, newer to fraud, those are things that you have to look forward to, right? Seeing people at conferences that you remember. Their first time when they were terrified and overwhelmed, and now they're up on stage sharing their brilliances. You remember the times that somebody had a breakdown in the hallway. Usually it was me, you know, and somebody else helped. You, you know, weren't alone. Them. I know. <laughs> well, you know, after like three or four days of being there when it first starts, because I worked there, I couldn't sleep in all the way to the end, and you're not sleeping, and there's just yeah. a lot of charged things. It can be emotional, but yeah. The conference so, drop is a real thing. Like when everybody leaves and you're not, you're the last one standing there going, what do I do now? <laughs> one time there was, and this, I know this has nothing to do with anything we're talking about, but there was one of the conferences I worked at, and this is really inside baseball, but there's, you know, a minimum that, that a conference has to spend with the hotel on food and beverage. And we hadn't met it. So the, it was like, well, you're going to pay this anyway. Do you want some food? And our, the head of the conference ordered this giant spread of crazy food, right? Like lobster and champagne. And then everybody like left right as it came. So they grabbed some food and then it was just me and him left with this giant buffet and all this champagne. Like, <laughs> yeah, I feel bad about that stuff. Yeah. But well, yeah, yeah, it happens all the, the time. Right. Yeah, it totally min- does. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. Right. But I mean, it's, it's a funny matter where it's like, oh yeah, well, if everybody that was here yesterday or even four hours ago were still here, you know, this would be gone in a heartbeat. But yeah. And, and I, I mean, I'm such a proponent for conferences because that is when you get to meet with your peers all in one place. And Which you and I have first so in-person much. first in-person conference yesterday. You did. That's right. You did the RSA conference since did, COVID. I did. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Nuts. So, <laughs> well, and I know we need to wrap this up and I am so yeah. excited that our friend Eric is going to come talk about some of the good old days in StubHub. I think people are going to really love it, but I want to just kind of let you share a little bit about what, what you're kind of working at. You talked a little bit about it, but what you're working on now, what you love to talk to people about, just a- any final words of wisdom, which you have so many, but. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be a little vague. Um, yeah. And that's what it, I'm that working is on is exactly. still very kind of in stealthy <laughs> mode, but I'm working in the space of consumer identity, human identity, and how we might be able to enable people to not just be able to identify themselves, but control their data in the process. And so most of the fraud risk issues that we've been dealing with personally, I've been dealing with over the last 20 years come down to a single question. Mm. Who am I dealing with on the other end of this wire? <laughs> and so we haven't, as an industry, really solved that problem. There's been a lot of focus on pseudo identity, but they're all probabilistic verifications. Do I have the right number of data elements that I can recite at a moment's notice? And mm. do I have the right device? And contextually, is this okay? And is there some biometric thing that was collected from my previous employer? Like things like passive biometrics, they get you to an answer that isn't necessarily one that is 100% accurate, 
right? It's not deterministic. It's probabilistic. And hmm. we need to get deterministic identity online. And that's a lot harder of a problem than anybody else thought it was. Especially oh, yeah. Me. But yeah, mm -hmm. no, right. I'm working in that space. That's where I'm at today. That's where I've been spending the last six or seven months in that space. And it's been really fun starting something from absolute nothing. It is. It's been great. That is so, um, it is hard, harder than anything to start something from nothing. But yeah. it is also insanely fulfilling. I mean, oh my gosh. I have the podcast. I have my consultancy. I have built some processes that are still standing for some of the biggest companies in the world. So I can relate. You have a ton of accolades and things that a lot of things that you can't talk about that you also created and done and patents and such. And so really admire you for always wanting to solve a new problem. It would be mm -hmm. very easy for you to do what you have done and you would be amazing at it. But you would also be bored. And so that is one reason why I am so lucky to be your friend, because I mean, there are so many reasons, but one of them is, you know, I really love the way your brain works. You're constantly trying to solve problems in unique ways that nobody else has thought of. I try. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, so more on that later. Yes. Yes. Well, and when you can talk about it, we'll see if it's sure. clear with the sponsor to be able to do that. And if it is, you've got my platform. But Robert, I just appreciate your time and your oh, experience. You. And you and I both knew that we could probably have this conversation without an outline, but we proved ourselves right. And I'm really looking forward to you and Eric coming on Fraudology soon to talk about some of the crazy cases and situations you guys ran into when he ran investigations at StubHub and you were his boss and oversaw it. So thank you again for your time and for being just amazing friend and a colleague oh, in our you. industry. And I look forward to talking with you soon. Can't wait. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.